Hello and welcome to episode four, season one of the 2024 NCG Golf Podcast. I am a very jet-lagged, very weary, hacking cough-ridden Tom Irwin, and I am joined by relative figure of health, my effervescent co-host, Steve Carroll. I'm practically ebullient now. Everything is just about cleared up. Ebullient. I think that's the word, isn't it? What's that mean? Like completely overjoyed to be here, Tom, and to see you in fine figure of health. How much do you want to? Um, how much do you want to talk about the remainder of my Orlando trip after last week? There's clearly something you want to impart, so let's get it off your chest. I'm not sure there is. I just wondered if you'd like, you know, just to complete the pieces of the jigsaw, just for a sense of finality about the whole thing. <laughs> like, uh, what else is there to say? You came home. You haven't slept since. That is basically the size of it, yeah. I played golf at somewhere called Eagle Creek on oh. Friday afternoon. Famous for what? Um, I think the architect having a day off, perhaps, would be about, about as good a thing I can think to say about it. Did it not chime with your experience? Yeah, a little bit. How have you been doing anyway? I feel like it's been a while since I've been in your presence. Have you been playing much golf? I was at Woodall Spa on the Hotchkin course on Tuesday, fashioning... Very nice, 33 points, which could have even been better if I blobbed 10 and 11. Of course you were. I forgot about that. Sort of trampling on my grave. That's my home playground. Yeah, I was sort of um, putting my footprints in your manor. Yeah, did you see the blue plaques they have in my various different dwellings across Lincolnshire or not? No, I did not. Uh, what I should say, though, is that um, Woodall Spa is absolutely incredible end of January. I mean, you have to, you play off mats on the fairway but i play off mats at york anyway so that's not a particular inconvenience to me but the turf was just like unbelievable considering that there was still rain everywhere like bunkers had loads of water in but the greens dm me like absolutely fabulous how can you get anywhere to look that good in a british winter well it's a pretty amazing thing isn't it they've taken out an unbelievable amount of trees as part of this doke renovation haven't they is that still going or is it finished no, I think it's been finished for a little while now, um, but it absolutely looks much the better for it. Um, the seventh hole, for example, which is like just so many more angles off that now with the clear out and the bunkers on the right of the dog leg. I hit my best drive of the day there. I absolutely sawed it. Dan Murphy, who I played with, said the one thing you're not supposed to do there is to like take on the bunkers. And that's exactly what I did. I sort of smacked it over the bunkers and drew it into the fairway. It was like, oh, such a, such a, I enjoyed that shot so much. Um, 13, you know, used to be. Um, a very crowded hole, sort of 13 and 14, and now they just look so much better for it. Um, 18, now they've took out... 18 looks, like, much more open, but it's no less difficult um, for that. Um, I think they've took that really big tree down on the left. I hope my memory is not playing games with me here, but there used to be, like, a really big tree on the left. It was right in the landing zone. It was just stupid. Um, and that's gone, and it just—it's still a really difficult hole, long hole for a, for a championship finishing course. But everything about that plus par three is just spectacular, aren't they? Um, I mean, it just sings to me. It was always the back nine that was particularly gloomy, um, and they've just—they have taken out thousands and thousands of trees. And as I understand it, kind of found like lost pieces of fairway where they've like found bunkers that have just been completely overgrown by stands of pine trees um so it's an incredible job they've done in, in terms of renovating in it and i suspect plays all the better in the winter um for the kind of 
the less gloomy atmosphere and the, and the better aeration for the soil. Um, they've got a new GM, haven't they? Richard Latham has stood down after many years. Not quite yet. He's got another. He's got another three or four weeks to go. Um, but yes, I think he's been there like nearly, is it quarter of a century or something like that? Long <clears throat> Absolute time, yeah. fixture of Woodhouse Park. Lovely guy, Richard Latham, lovely guy. Um, and Brad Gould, who has been at the Grove for many years as well, is coming. So that'll be an interesting move, that, because that's a, it's a very different culture, I think, from proprietary at the Grove and, um, to, to sort of obviously, I mean, <clears throat> you know, a, a club like Woodhouse Park, historic, traditional, um, you know the membership demographics uh, that will come with that. I really like Woodall Spa generally because uh, although it is an elite golf course, they offer a members rate to England golf people. So basically, if you're a member of a of, a, of an English golf club, you get a discount at Woodall Spa. It's like twenty five quid, I think, and um, which does help to bring the price down. So it finds the whole place finds favour with me, Tom. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny old thing, though, isn't it? I think I can say this as a sort of Lincolnshire person. It's not quite the middle of nowhere, but you can see it from there, can't you? And it's it's the sort of home of England golf, which is an oddity in itself. Um, it feels like a private members club, but it's not. It has a board of directors and it's kind of privately owned. Um, and there's big investment happening, isn't there? They've spent a lot of money on the practice facilities, um, which is the kind of home of the England elite squads. And they've got big plans to renovate the, the clubhouse, which I'm sure will be amazing. It will also be a shame because it's a proper kind of ramshackle, cottagey, lovely thing at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I feel very mixed about that. Um, firstly, I mean, as you quite rightly say, um, I mean, I'd go further. It is in the middle of nowhere. Um, you Come have on. to make you have to make a proper trip to get there. I mean, some of the wo- some of the roads towards the end are so windy that I basically got car sick on the way down. <laughs> um, literally, was like in the car green. Uh, it is a travel, but but it is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. I mean, some people would say that Woodall Spa as a as a as a, a kind of village as a conurbation was quaint, but I quite like it. Um, there is a relaxed feel about it, but there's plenty to do there. There's, couple, there's some great restaurants there. There's a couple of good bars there, so there's plenty for golfers to do. But I feel mixed about the clubhouse. I understand why you'd want a modern development there because everything around it is modern. Obviously, the England Golf headquarters are modern. And then you've got this clubhouse that looks like a prefab. Um, but there's something really cool about and traditional about it when you're inside, you know, all the wooden boards and all the on, on, all the honours boards and the kind of the furniture that's there. And I wonder whether I understand the need for progress, but I sort of feel like we're losing a bit of something historic when these these kind of old timeless buildings come down. Yeah, but I'm sure it'll be a brilliant facility for the members. Absolutely. Um, so we've got a lot to get through here, Steve. This is the week of our special guest. Apart from it's not our special guest, it's a different special guest. Still special nonetheless, Tom. Still very special nonetheless. So later on, we're going to hear from Paul Laurie, uh, Open champion, no less, eight-time tour winner, two-time Ryder Cupper. And he's got a load of interesting things to say about his kind of second career and his new life um, up in Scotland in Aberdeen, where he's kind of wearing two hats. He's running a golf centre, uh, the Paul Laurie Golf Centre, which I think has opened his eyes to some of the issues affecting the grassroots game. And he's got some really interesting things to say about that. Uh, and he's also involved in the Tartan Pro Tour, which was kind of something born out of COVID. He's been front and centre and he's the sole owner of that, which is providing playing opportunities for um, pros across 
Scotland, very much at the sort of grassroots end of the game. Paul's a fascinating character. Um, he touches on his own career and his role in the Ryder Cup. Um, so looking forward to sort of sharing that with you later on. We've got a ton of stuff to get through before then. Steve realised that he doesn't actually understand the uh, four ball, better ball handicap allocation. So he's going to share with us those findings and make sure you lot understand it. We are going to have to discuss, though, I'm afraid, this PGA Tour announcement. I have to say that I am sort of in two minds about this because when we're sort of discussing about whether we're going to discuss the PGA Tour's new strategic for-profit venture, PGA Tour Enterprises, and the investment therein by something called the Strategic Sports Group, I do wonder whether... I actually give a shit about it and whether you actually care about it. Um, it's it's something that is obviously a massive deal for the sport at the top end. You do wonder how much it's actually going to affect the day-to-day golfer. But I think we are kind of contractually obliged to discuss it and and kind of, I guess, through that sort of prism and whether it, whether it will actually impact us as fans or us as day-to-day golfers. What do you reckon, Steve? I mean, the whole the whole SSG thing's bored me from the very start, I'm afraid. Um I understand that for players, it's probably really, really good because there's this 1.5 billion of the 3 billion that's being invested that will be accessible as equity to them. So they'll get richer. Hooray. I suppose the, the, the interesting thing for me is how that money is distributed and who gets what. I mean, obviously, there was a big song and dance about the um, social media fund. I can't even remember what it's called, but. It seems to me that the only people who benefit from that are people like Tiger Woods, Roy McIlroy, latterly John Rahm. So um, it'll be interesting to see how much of this money is spread down the game. But ultimately, I still think we're just dancing around the bigger issue. Yeah, it's a three million deal with SSG. What's happening with PIF? Because it's PIF and Live that are taking the players away not the SSG. So until they get to a deal with PIF and we can get some sort of merger and get back to some sort of rounded framework for golf globally, this is all window dressing. It's it's like it's like great for them. I'm not dissing it. Fantastic for the PGA Tour to have this kind of investment. You know, if someone says we want to invest three billion quid, you go, <laughs> or three billion dollars, sorry, you say absolutely fantastic. But what what I can't seem to work out from just reading the press release stuff is what the SSG want for their money. Yeah, yeah. It might be just worth going through the sort of the, the kind of steps that have got to this point. So I think a lot of people will be wondering kind of what's happened to the Saudis. I mean, when when the when there were rumours of an announcement yesterday, I think a lot of people thought that this was going to be it. This was going to be um, the kind of resolution to the framework agreement that was announced last summer, um, and then it wasn't. Um, so I think if you sort of go back to then, so I think it was June the sixth last year when to the surprise of nearly everybody, um, the PGA Tour and the PIF um, announced that they were going to work together on a on a formal agreement to bring golf together. Um, it meant that the lawsuits were dropped and they set themselves a deadline of the end of 2023 to, um, to basically ratify that deal, I guess, um, which they've now extended into 2024. Um, and I guess it was kind of the sort of poor reception that 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 framework agreement was met with by some of the PGA Tours members, by which I mean players, um, that has kind of led to this kind of third party investment. I think I'm right in saying that. So as, as a result of the um, the announcement of the framework agreement, then the structure of the PGA Tour board was changed and more players introduced to it, effectively giving players a right of veto. An investment from other sources other than the Saudi Investment Fund was 
were sought. So who are who are these people who are investing in it? Do you know? Uh, I do because helpfully they um, they the tour t- <laughs> told us all about it in a press release. The most notable people involved are Fenway Sports Group, which obviously own Liverpool. Um, so from a uh, from from that point of view, they would be the most recognisable to um, to our audience. John W. Henry, who's obviously the principal owner of Fenway, he's the manager of the strategic sports group. So they would be that they would be the most recognisable people because I, th- I think they own the Boston Red Sox as well. Or they certainly did. Anyway, John Henry and obviously Mike Gordon, who's the president of Fenway Sports Group. Sam Kennedy, who's the CEO and president of the Boston Red Sox. That that all makes sense, doesn't it? And then various other people who seem to be involved with lots of American sports teams. Stephen A. Cohen, for example, who's chairman and CEO of the New York Mets. You've got uh, Arthur Blank, who is the co-founder of Home Depot, but also um, AMB Sports and Entertainment. Well, they've got the Atlanta Falcons. So, I mean, also interestingly for our audience, there's um, Mark Atanasio, who's uh, at Milwaukee Brewers, but also Norwich City. So there is, I, I would say there's a lot of sporting knowledge within that group. And they've obviously got loads of money and they're investing in something called PGA Tour Enterprises, which is a for-profit commercial business basically which allows the tour to remain as effectively a charity i think they call it a 501 or something in in the states and i think that gives kind of sponsors and investors in the tour itself kind of tax exemptions so that's something they'd obviously be then keen to maintain and pga tour enterprises also remains as a potential invest investment vehicle for the pif should that ever come to fruition it does feel like that the PJ Tour Enterprises with this Fenway investment and certainly what some of the players are saying is that they don't they no longer need the PIF investment that's what Spieth has been saying this week maybe there will be an agreement I guess hopefully there will be an agreement but if there isn't like these things can coexist um, people have talked a lot about the fan experience being diminished and it's the fan that suffers I'm entirely sure that's true you, you, like, you've got more to watch if anything um, two different products two different sets of players uh, in many ways, some of the kind of most mundane aspects of tour golf are when we're seeing the same people competing week in, week out, particularly towards the end of the season. And by having the sort of live as an alternate product, I'm all for it, I think. Like, it's just, it's a different thing, isn't it? So I think regardless of what which direction it goes in, the kind of man in the street has got plenty plenty of golf to watch. I'm not really sure it affects me on a day-to-day basis. It's certainly not affecting the club golfer to any any great degree, is it? I mean, outside of the people that are really polarized about it on social media, either hate it or love it, um, <clears throat> I don't think the average player, I don't think it, it hits them that hard. Um, it's, it's not helped, obviously, that for the demographic of golfer um, that we have in clubs, then they're not necessarily tuning in to watch golf on YouTube. I think they should um, because – I Whatever you think about live, I think the fact that golf's being offered free to air is fantastic, actually, um, and that should be celebrated. But um, I, I, people, you know, people don't ask me about it in clubhouses very often. Sometimes when they find out what I do for a living, they say, "Well, what do you think about live?" Because it's a point of conversation. Mm. But then, but it, it's not something that you hear massively discussed in the clubhouse. You know, these match player changes we're going to get talked about will be far more the focus than what's happening at Mayakoba this weekend. Yeah, I think people are far, far more into their own golf, aren't they? Yeah. Um, And I do do think if there's a risk of people being turned off tour golf by it, it's because of just this constant kind of 
message that we are receiving of the rich getting richer. And that, Steve, is the subject of this week's Reader's Wines. This, this week's Reader's Wines is it's about... It's me, I introduce it. You just back off. Oh, dear me. Go on then, introduce it. I'll be quiet. Regular listeners will know that Reader's Wines is a weekly feature where we look below the line on social media. Below the line on social media basically means the comments section where people say things that they wouldn't dare say to your face. It is a very smutty pun based on a feature in a magazine that many of us used to read as teenagers. And if you get the reference, then shame on you. And this week, I'm handing over to my co-host, Steve Carroll, who's been very, very triggered by some of these online grumbles. Well, not, not triggered. You know, I'm not like I'm not throwing anything out of the uh, out of the window or anything like that. But you are triggered. Am- you are triggered. You messaged me specifically to say we're doing it, and I think it was in Block Capitals. And if it wasn't, it had a very sort of shouty feel about it, saying we're definitely doing this as readers' wines. Tom, I never, I never say anything in social media. I even had a passive aggressive full stop, which you're prone <laughs> to. But this is about um, the news, obviously, that Tyrrell Hatton was unveiled as Liv's new star signing. Um, for however much money that is. I don't know how much money it is. I'm sure Tyrrell, uh, that's between Tyrrell and his tax man or tax woman. But obviously, whenever you put anything about live on social media, you get various responses. And it's the responses that trigger me. Look, I have no, um, if, if people hate live or love live, that's up to them. Um, if the uh, questions that, the involvement of PIF um, and the Saudi Arabian government um, pro- propose, uh, uh, provoking people. If, if that's a massive issue for them, I respect that. I'm not asking people to like it or hate it. It's up to them. But when a player goes to, to live, you get some stock responses on social media that are just daft, that are just stupid, like, good riddance, he won't be missed. He's not a star. Someone like saying he's never won on the PGA Tour until someone pointed out that actually he had won on the PGA Tour. He won the Arnold Palmer Invitational. Oh, well, he's only won once. So that doesn't negate my argument. It, it like literally negates your argument. And I use the word literally in the proper sense here. You know, if you, if your argument is he hasn't won on the PGA Tour and he's actually won on the PGA Tour, that negates your argument. Um, <laughs> but this, but this kind of this kind of dismissive attitude of well he won't be missed well well he will be missed and 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 John Rahm will be missed on the PGA tour um, because they're big draws you know like and I know you say that and, and we discussed earlier that you might not necessarily watch a tournament for John Rahm or for Tyrrell Hatton that is true but when those people are all together in the collective it does make thing it does make tv and it does make watching tv better so the idea that he's not a star he won't be missed good riddance to him you know i i just i just think the whole argument is ridiculous and pointless you know it, it is the, the more of these players that go to live the more it strengthens live the more it weakens the pga tour at least in the in terms of the the caliber of player that they can bring so to just say to just dismiss every player i mean like where is social media going to get to? What player 
are people going to go, oh, my God, that's a big miss. Oh, my God, like, how's the PGA Tour going to survive without this? Do you know what I mean? If, like, if if players that – Terrell Hatton has been continually performing on the PGA Tour for the better part of 18 months now. Not four or five months ago, he's an absolute star of Europe's Ryder Cup winning side that demolished the USA. The, to just trivialise – his um his his departure to live is ridiculous in my opinion. Yeah, he's quite hard to take seriously though, isn't he? He's got that sort of funny, sort of early extension thing going on, and he often looks like he's sort of slaffed it, and he's quite an odd shape, and then he's kind of and got he, this sort of weird sort of Captain Caveman thing. And he seems to hate every shot he's ever hit. Um, sort of but, remind, but, reminds me of like a teenager who someone's taken their Xbox off them because it's kind of bedtime or permanently. Again, though, you I mean like I'm not going to offer people opinions on what they should think about Tyrrell Hatton. It's up to them, you know. I mean, there, there are some people who find his antics on the golf course distasteful. Well, okay, that's your opinion. It's all right, but but to but this it's this stock response to to players who've defected in general. Um, rather than just Tyrrell Hatton that's kind of set me off because it's, oh, we won't miss him. I won't, I won't bother watching anymore. And it's just like, come on, come on. But that's what you do. That's like, that's like jilted lovers. It's like, that's what you say, isn't it? You go, good riddance, and slam the door behind as your wife walks out on you. And then you sort of crumple in a heap in tears. But you don't do it in public, do you? <laughs> it's, it's an interesting analogy, certainly. So the So what I would say to you, Steve, and... I'm not entirely sure that I agree. So two things. I think this conflation of the two points. So one, does Tyrrell Hatton going to live, strength and live, 100%? Does that make it true that the PGA Tour is weaker? I'm not sure it does. I don't think those two things, I think those two things can coexist. You're um, stretching my point a little bit there. I, I'm, I'm not. That's literally what you said. No, word I, for I, word. Talked about, I talked about the collective of players, um, of which Tyrrell Hatton is one. Right. So here's an example for you. So Harry Kane left Spurs in the summer to go to Bayern Munich. Is the Premier League diminished because Harry Kane is not in it? Slightly. He was Slightly. one of the standout. Yeah, because he was one of the standout stars on the PGA Tour and was in and around the Golden Boot for years and years and years. And now he's now he's not there. Now he's potentially breaking records in the Bundesliga. That has made the Bundesliga better. It hasn't made the Premier League worse. That's those two think that is not true, is it? Because when when you're watching Sky Sports on a rainy Saturday afternoon in ten years' time, and it says, "and here's the highlights of the 2023-24 season." It's not going to start up by saying, and we have to remember that this season must be caveated because Harry Kane wasn't here anymore, so it was all a bit miserable. The Premier League would be a better product if Harry Kane was in it. But how can you possibly say that? Like the whole thing at Spurs and Postacoglu, whatever his name is, like the, the whole narrative around Spurs is about their exciting brand of football and Harry Kane's long forgotten. Do you not think there's a massive element of the king is dead, long live the king with all this stuff? I mean, well, there's a bit of recency bias about all of this. You need to sort of figure out where they are at the end of the season at the moment. Where are they? Where at the moment? Six? I'd Ooh. argue they're not. To- Spurs. Where are they? Six? But don't Seven? I hate Spurs. They're fourth. Oh, my gosh. They're fourth. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think the Premier League is um, it's a better place with England's captain and greatest ever goal scorer in it. Um, well... I'm sorry, this is not in any way disparaging about Harry Kane and what he's brought to English football. I'm just saying that the Premier League is a very established product in the same way that the 
the PGA Tour is. It's got is kind of the rhythm of the season is set. The kind of narrative around the season each year is different. The different players who come and sort of make up those those stories are different each year. Um, and I'm saying that yes, obviously, if you lose high profile players, you would rather that wasn't happening. But I'm not sure it necessarily weakens the product to the degree that people think they do. So I have some sympathy with the Tyrrell Hatton people saying doesn't weaken the product actually um, because for all these I'd like hot streaks and for all these obviously a combustible character and he's sensational on the European tour's social media for your average sports fan are they tuning in thinking oh Hatton's not playing not going to switch it on then it's just not how it works is it I'll put you in with the grit to see him go crowd I'm like no 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 why would you why would you do that why would you twist my words like that I'm a journalist Tom it's literally what I do for a living Apparently. You are a journalist, Steve, but that doesn't mean you don't get the occasional thing wrong, do you? So we're going to just uh, step away from tour life briefly and we're going to have a look at some changes to the way that four ball, better ball handicaps are working as a result of the recent WHS changes. And some RNA rules officials died in the wall club golfers or authorities on the game hadn't actually realised that this wasn't the rule, had you, Steve? Well, no one realised this was happening as far as I can see. It, it, it came as a big surprise. It wasn't really announced. I mean, this stuff this stuff is really in the weeds. What is it? In what the new it? rules of handicapping. So you all know that the um, composition scores in the four-ball, better-ball format are changing and they could be eligible for your handicap records if you hit some strict criteria. We've talked loads about this. Um, but the way that handicaps that are applied in four ball, better ball and foursomes match play games. So this refers to match play, four ball, better ball, match play and foursomes match play. That's also being altered. And this um, came as a little bit of a surprise, I think, to many people. Um, it's a subtle change, but it is an interesting one. Um, so at the moment in better ball, let's take better ball, as the example, um, you work out your course handicap, all four players work out your course handicap, and then you apply the 90% four ball, uh, format allowance for four ball, better ball to calculate a playing handicap. After you do that, you then work how, how many shots you get from the lowest playing handicap. So this is changing from April. And what we're essentially doing is we're going back to how it was pre-WHS. So you'll calculate your course handicap, take shots from the lowest golfer and it's only at that point that you'll then work out the 90% allowance and in foursomes it's 50% of the difference between each team's combined course handicaps so in some cases um, this might change the way that shots were allocated you might go get one or lose one um, compared to um, the new calculations but I actually think they're quite good I don't know if I've explained it very well but um, by going back to what we did pre-WHS, it's actually going to be easy to work out, particularly match, uh, for some match play. I mean, I think I've been doing, it's a good job the computer has been working out a lot of foursomes match play for me since WHS came in, or I would have almost certainly done this wrong because I thought the new ways were the old ways. <laughs> so um, Sorry, I just don't, I, I don't get it right. So I'm just going to, I'm going to explain what I do if I'm playing in a four ball, better ball match and you can tell me where I've been going wrong. So I get on the tee. I say, right, I'm off scratch. My playing partner says, right, I'm off 10. I say 90% of 10 is nine. You get nine. Yeah. Wrong. What's wrong with that? 
because you, you, what you do is um, currently you have to work out your course handicap, then you have to apply the 90% at that point to calculate the playing handicaps, and then only then can you take from the lowest playing handicap. So you're you're basically doing the new ways, but that's all that also the old way, isn't it? No, it's 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 subtly different. It's slightly different. So tr- I'm going to explain it again, right? I'm going to explain it again because you need to work out where the point is. At the moment in better ball, you all work out your course handicap. You with me so far? Yeah. Then you apply the format allowance, which is ninety percent in four ball, better ball, match play. Yeah. Then you apply the 90% and that works out your playing handicaps. Once you've done this, then you start doing the shots from the lowest playing handicap. Right. So does this mean I, mean, I can demand a replay of the handicap knockout last year in which I got knocked out in the first round? Probably no. Because <laughs> you might end up you might end up all being DQ'd for not playing to the rules last week on that thing about prizes. Yeah, but that's not an admin error. That's your fault. Oh. Um, and so again, just to, just to reiterate it, um, now what's going to happen from April is what happened pre 2020, which is you'll work out your course handicap, then you'll take the shots from the lowest golfer, and then at that point you'll work out the 90% allowance. And it will make things. I mean, for for a lot of golfers uh, and a lot of clubs who've had proper software installed, if they've been doing their um, their match play competitions through like IG or club systems or whatever internet service provider, the whatever ISV they've been using, then they'll have been doing it properly because the computer actually works it out for you and tells you how many shots you're getting on the tee. So you just, you open the app and you go, right, you get one, you get four, you get seven. Um, so it won't make a massive amount of difference because all that will happen is the calculation will change and the app will still take over it. Um, but if you're one of those clubs that haven't had a lot of software, um, or you've been trying to work this stuff out on the hoof, um, it will make it easier on the tee. It will be more straightforward. But basically, it's a change that's going to put things back to how people have been doing it anyway. Yeah, and that's the kind of the point. Um, they wanted to make it easier for golfers to do it, and they wanted to remove confusion, and there was confusion um, about it. You know, if you didn't have that software, I mean, like, try doing it for mixed, for example. You know, I mean, like, all... And obviously mixed is a bit more complicated, but, you know, no one could stand on the first tee of a tournament and know what to do with mixed competitions or competitions where um, things were being done off different tees. So with with the introduction of course rating minus par and with this change, um, it should be a lot easier to work this stuff out. Yeah. Um, and that, and that'll, be, that, that'll be good. It does remind me of a bit of a time where I stopped speaking to my wife for a week and then she said she hadn't even noticed the difference. It's a bit like that, isn't it? <laughs> I don't really want to get on the couch with you at this point, Tom. No, there's quite a lot of these analogies slipping in, isn't there? It's kind of um, telltale, isn't it? Well, that is interesting, Steve. So now I think we should move on to our special guest. What do you reckon? Yeah, a perfect time. So we're trying to provide an antidote to sort of tour life. We're all a bit weary of piffs and pips and investment vehicles and strategic alliances and God knows what else. Um, so this week's special guest is Paul Laurie, uh, who, as I said at the top of the show, is a two-time Ryder Cupper, eight-time tour winner, a major champion, no less. 
Um, but he's kind of in his second career uh, at his home up in Aberdeen where he owns a nine-hole golf course and driving range, the Paul Laurie Golf Centre. And he's also front and centre in the Tartan Pro Tour, which is something he started uh, during COVID to give Scottish golfers somewhere to play closer to home. It's absolutely fascinating interview. It's sort of an insight into, I guess, what golfers do after they've stopped playing golf. And uh, in many ways, Paul sort of explains the kind of uh, the logic behind that career path, which is something st- he started when he was right at the at the, at the pomp of his career. Um, and also just sort of someone who is obviously so kind of wedded to the game, wants people to enjoy the game, um, wants wants the game to be accessible to as many people as possible. Uh, it's a brilliant listen. Um, and Matt Chivers from NCG does a great job of coaxing him along. Let's have a listen. I, I thought I'd, I'd really like to speak to you about, you know, the, the golf centre. You know, it's it's really become quite a thing, isn't it? You know, it's, I think it's, it's twenty four bays. You've got a nine hole par three course there. Um, how, how much, how 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 fun has that sort of project been for you to develop in the last few years? Um, well, we 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 took it over in two thousand and twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we've had it sort of eleven years now. Um, we. Um, we took a wee while to get it all sorted out financially. It lost quite a bit of money for a while. Um, we spent quite a bit of money changing it and making it better and improving it. We put a big short game area in, which obviously was quite expensive. Yeah. We've, um, you know, added tees and we're constantly sort of making it better, which is obviously what you've got to do with a business. Uh, we're very proud of it. Um, it's busy. Uh, people seem to like it. The staff are... The staff are amazing, uh, which is kind of the biggest thing that my wife and I are all about. Um, everyone that comes in the door gets greeted properly, gets a hello, how you doing? Customer service is very, very important. So we're here, my wife and I are here most days. Um, obviously, we're both directors of it, so you know we kind of keep a, a keen interest. Um, anything that's got my name above the door, obviously, is important that it comes over the right way. And I see. The staff know that. Um, and they do a great job so it's a it's a lovely place to be fair yeah fantastic um, I suppose it's not just the um, the par 3 course and the range it's like you've got a physiotherapy unit there haven't you a golf shop so it's quite it's quite an all rounder of a golf facility isn't it I suppose yeah we have um, we have a large golf shop uh, we have a really nice coffee shop which is called Claritz we have um, three teaching bays 27 hitting bays all with top tracer in them a uh, large shotgun area, two large putting greens, a nine-hole par three, the two holes, two holes can turn into par fours for the medals uh, on a Saturday and a Wednesday. Custom fit centre, which is mobbed. So yeah, it's um, it's full on. Twenty four staff, I think, or twenty five staff, mm-hmm. or something like that, in a number. So yeah, it's a fair, it's a fair operation. And Craig Dempster is our director of golf. He kind of runs the whole place. He's yeah. kind of in charge. Um, does a wonderful job. Um, lovely lad. Uh, hard working. So we're lucky to have him. I know you said you started it um, 2012 and that, 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 that's when you were still playing. So a uh, sort of teaching and sort of golf development always been a thing on your mind during your career? Um, yeah, I was, um, I was very lucky that I met in with quite a few people all at the same time who were helping me to get myself on the on the ladder as far as a golfer was concerned, business guys um, who kind of put money in to, to kind of sponsor me a little bit. And um, two of those in particular, um, Stuart Spence, who owns the Markleff Hotel in Aberdeen, and Martin Gilbert, who you'll probably know from, you know, Aberdeen Asset days. I see, yeah. 
they were they were helping me and advising me and they always said that you need to get things in place now you know while you're playing so that when you're finished playing and that part of your life's over you've got an interest to kind of businesses to kind of keep you going and keep you active not not so much a money wise but just to have something to do and keep your kind of hand in as it were so that was great advice so we did that when i was still playing i mean i was I was uh, in the middle of my 2012 season trying to get in the Ryder Cup team when mm. we bought this place. So, you know, we were we were actively trying to get things on the go um, for later in life, which is where I am now, unfortunately. <laughs> later in life. <laughs> with, with junior golfers, it's an incredibly important sort of demographic to the game. Um, and I remember when I, I'm 26 now, but when I, when I was about 12 or 11, when I started doing lessons, um, I think the first thing that got put into my hands was 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 a um, a rule book. Which sort of things do you think are most important to sort of integrate into children? Is it um, in golf? Is it is it all the rules? Do you think it's etiquette, uh, slow play, dress code? What 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 would your thoughts be on on that? I think there's uh, I think you've got to be careful with with children, and we've learned that over the years. Where the most important thing you must put in them is that it's fun. Yeah, um, I think it, yeah the old the old school and the old way of doing it was to make sure that everyone dressed in a certain way and behaved in a certain way. Um, I'm not saying that's not important, but I think the most important thing and the thing that a lot of older people miss or lose is that kids are not having fun for a while playing golf. There was too much sort of rules and too much don't mm. stand here and don't do that and don't do this. I think you've got to allow them to. We certainly allow them to dress. In any way that they feel comfortable when they come here for lessons and to play, um, I think that's important um, because we did a not a survey, but when we first started the foundation, um, it was really really busy, and then it tailed off for a wee while. And I kind of asked a few of the kids who hadn't been for a while, you know, what what's the story? Oh, you know, I don't want to dress, I don't want to change clothes to go and play golf. And you think, wow, we've got to, you know, we've got to learn from stuff like that. You've got to ask. Mm. The kids, now what what do you want? And to a certain extent, they can't do everything that they want. Obviously, they've got to behave and they can't shout and ball. And <laughs> yeah. But to a certain extent, they've got to be able to wear a hoodie and they've got to be able to wear leggings and whatever they want or joggers. So we're not we're not hard and fast. We, we we want kids to come in. The coaching is fun. The coaching is quite loud downstairs. The coaches get the kids into it. There's a little bit more fitness involved in the coaching as well now with warm ups and dynamic warm ups and. All that's changing uh, for the better. Uh, so our kids that come here, I think if you ask them, I think they thoroughly enjoy the yeah. lessons that they have, which once upon a time might not have been the case. Yeah, I see. Um, I think recently my colleague Steve, um, Steve Carroll, wrote an article based on a survey recently that um, I think about 1,600 golfers took part in it and over half of them pay um, over £1,000 for membership fees at their golf clubs. Um, I suppose... This has brought up sort of some sort of debate about affordability, and then with that figure of a thousand pounds, that doesn't actually average out at that much, at that badly. I think that that averages out at about twenty quid a week, um, which I suppose is not that bad. Um, but would you say sort of affordability and then accessibility is 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 an issue in in in, in the sport? Um, not really. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that you've got some people. Some people are paying between five and a thousand pounds, five hundred pounds and a thousand pounds for a membership and playing three times a week, yeah. four times a week. I mean, my God, they're paying a fiver for a game of golf. Or <laughs> yeah. And it, I'm not having a go at them, but it's 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 them that moan. 
you know, about mm. what to pay for, for golf. Um, if you're paying a thousand pounds for a membership and you're playing once a year, that, that, that's unbelievably expensive. Mm. But it's not if you're playing. If you're an active golfer and you play once or twice a week, golf club memberships, I don't think, over the year are overly expensive at all. I mean, we are 320 pounds here to be a member of our club, our golf course. You can play the course, you can use the short game area, you can use the button green as often as you want. We've got people who play three and four times a week here and they pay 320 pounds a year. It's a par three course and I'm not so sure you could charge much more than that. But, mm. you know, they get great value for what they pay and I think that's what it's about. But the bigger courses are charging what they're charging as long as you're playing them regularly. Uh, I don't see them being that expensive. But, you know, you've got to play. If you don't play much, it's very expensive, a thousand pounds. But it's not if you play a lot. Yeah, I see, certainly. Um, yeah, that, I think that's what sort of came out in, the, in sort of the comments comments on social media and stuff. You get people that um, say, well, I play twice a week, three, two or three times a week, so I'm not experiencing bad value for money. But I suppose it's about it's about getting out two or three times a week, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the golf clubs, it's not, it's not up to me to say to set the golf club membership fees, that's up to them. Yeah. Um, and if you're not getting your value for money, then you maybe need to go somewhere that you do get I'm, I'm, I'm value for I'm not sure. It's not, that's not my call. We run our place and we charge a fee that we feel is fair. Um, and we've got quite a few members and it's gone up quite a lot in the last couple of years. So people who are a member here get great, great value for money and that's what it's about for us. Yeah, yeah I see. Um... Another thing I wanted to speak to you about, really, is the is the uh, it's a Tartan tour, of course. You know, you've got four new venues in twenty twenty four, and you know, on the website and everything that comes out of the Tartan tour, it's just you know, the prize money is outstanding and the opportunities are outstanding. It must be something you're incredibly, incredibly proud of. Yeah, the, the Tartan Pro Tour. Uh, make sure you put the word "pro" in there because the yes. the, the, the PGA Scottish region is kind of classed as the Tartan Tour, so okay. we're the Tartan Pro Tour. Just to make sure that people don't get. Of course, yeah, of course that um, when COVID hit um, the EuroPro had cancelled their whole season uh, and my son Craig who I think you were communicating with earlier yes, yeah. he was playing EuroPro at the time he wasn't a PGA Pro um, so he was then done for the whole year with playing there was nowhere for him to play or any other like-minded kind of professionals who are not the PGA so we thought right why don't we lay on some events so we laid on six 36 whole events at the end of that year and they went very well and everyone was raving about it. So then we laid on 12 the following year and, you know, I spoke to the, the tour and spoke to Keith Pelly. He was very supportive. You know, he gave us a, a challenge tour card from our Audra Merit. We've now got two cards mm-hmm. from our Audra Merit for players that go up. We've got, you know, 13 events. Average prize money is about 22, 23 grand an event type thing. Um, 100% of the entry fees go in to the events. That was very, very important from my point. I see other tours not doing that. I see. Um, and you're just taking money off the players. I didn't want to do that. Well, how other players and other tours do it is totally up to them, but I didn't want to do that. And then we've got sponsorship from people. And again, I, throughout my career, I've met a lot of people, played in a lot of pro-ams. I've always been very commercially minded. I always get a business card when I play with people. So I've got a I've got a long list of contacts of people mm. that I can phone up and ask them to sponsor things. I'm very lucky that way, but they know we're going to do it properly. And we've had a lot of help and a lot of support. And the tour is something probably 
one of the biggest things that I'm most proud of, of what we've produced. I think it's an amazing tour. The players love it. Sponsors are amazing to work with. The venues as well. The venues don't get paid, um, which is important. To, you know, they play their part as much as we do and as much as anyone else do. It's all about making sure we get enough money for the players to play for that they can try and earn a living out of playing golf in their own country, which is what it's about. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, what a commodity that is. Um, and you mentioned there the, the the couple of spots that that will be up for the Challenge Tour in uh, 2025. That that that's that must be one of the most encouraging signs so far in the Tartan Tour's history, mustn't it? Well, I think it tells you that you know they're happy with what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can see the job that they're doing. You know, they're not going to increase it from one to two if we're doing a terrible job and players are unhappy. They're only going to do that if what the, what they see they like. Um, so we're chuffed to bits with that. Obviously, Reese Thompson was our winner from last mm-hmm. year, so mm-hmm. he has a full challenge tour card for this year. So we're interested to see how Reese gets on because he kind of dominated our tour pretty much, you mm-hmm. know, 2023. Uh, outstanding winner of it. Uh, lovely lad. So we're all hoping that he does really, really well. Uh, and then from this year's tour, yeah, we've got two that go up. So um, that tour's just gone from strength to strength, which is great. No, no, fantastic. Um, I thought I'd ask you about your own sort of, sort of playing prospects. In the last couple of years, you, you experienced some good, some good success in the European Senior Tour. Have, have you got any, um, any plans to, to, to compete as well as, as well as your off-course stuff this year? I, I seem to be playing sort of less and less. Mm. Um, I, I only played five events last year. I kind of struggle to fit much more in than that. I could probably go to seven or eight would be a kind of maximum. I want to. I want to make sure that, I mean, I played the main tour for 30 years. I played 620 events. Yeah, yeah. You get to the point where <clears throat> jumping on a plane for 10 hours to go and play golf is not something that you want to do, you know, anymore. But I still enjoy playing. I still enjoy competing. So I'll always play, you know, bits and pieces. But, you know, Tartan Pro Tour, the Aberdeen Golf Links Pro-Am, the Scottish Challenge, these things that we run and we promote, I'm, I'm way more, I, I way more enjoy and the players that we manage are way more enjoy that than playing now, uh, which I never thought would ever be the case. But yeah. It just shows you how things change. Um, I, I enjoyed my playing career. I gave it everything I had. Uh, I was half decent. I enjoyed it. But there comes a point where the thought of going away and playing 20 events a year just does not interest me at all. I've got a nice mix of I mean I'm, I'm in the golf centre just now I'm here most days, I'm here early in the morning get some work done and then mm-hmm. I can head off in the afternoon, take the dog for a walk or go for a run in the car I have a nice mix at the moment No, Fantastic, no, it must, must have must be incredibly fatiguing to play a full a, a full schedule um, but you know, they say you, you have, you have very much better than half decent in my opinion, you know, you're an eight time eight time winner, major champion um, and you and you, and you won those titles against, you know, during the European tours, hey, that, you know, against top, top players. Um, I suppose, what, what, what would you, what would be your views on the tour's current position now in sort of, like, the climate we find golf in? Because they've, they've offered cards to PJ Tour, which is great for those players, of course, but I suppose, I suppose that sort of resigns the, the European tour's status to, to what it is, if you know what I mean. Um, well, I, I, um, I was on the board for a while mm-hmm. uh, at DP World Tour. I did about a year, and just I was just too busy. I couldn't. I mean, it was way more workload than than what you know they said and I thought. So I kind of came off quite a while ago. 
So I'm not really involved in, in mm. any of the stuff that they are kind of doing at the moment. Uh, obviously, the, the, the there's full on at the minute for them as far as Liv and PIF and PGA Tour and, and all that sort of stuff. But I kind of came out of that about a year ago. So I actually don't know where they're at. Uh, don't know what's happening. Um, all I do know is that it would be great if everyone could just work together and everyone mm. just got on together. And it would be a great shame if the DP World Tour weren't able to be a part of what the PIF fund is trying to do you know, for everybody, which is put in an unbelievable amount of money. So it would be nice if everyone worked together and everyone got on together, but is that is that going to happen? I honestly don't know. I don't really have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I'm not involved in it. So if you're not involved in it and you don't know the facts of it, I think it's difficult to comment. Yeah, I see, I see. Um... Basically, I think everyone's sort of coming around to sort of the the public investment funds um, um, involvement in golf because if you're putting that much money money into 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 our sport, then it, it can't really be a bad thing, can it? Really? Uh, well, no. I think that was um, it was nice to hear. It was nice to hear Rory saying that he kind of wishes he hadn't kind of gone in mm. as hard as he did at the start uh, because I thought that was surprising. I think if you're a if you're a professional golfer and you play golf for a living and somebody's offering you all that money and you're a certain age, I think it would have been difficult not to have accepted it, the players that did. So for him to then jump on them the way he did, I'm not so sure that was right. But again, that, that's just that's up to him. Yeah. It was great. To, I, I played with Rory in his very first event as a pro. I've always been a massive fan of him. I think he's such a good lad compared considering how good a player he is and what he's won he's really good fun great sense of humor uh i shout for him all the time and obviously the pga tour were looking for someone to be their their spokesman as it were and he seemed to be the guy that he stepped they, up they wanted. yeah so difficult for him really difficult and um, if you're talking to the press that much about it you're gonna make you're gonna say things that maybe down the road you wish you hadn't so it was great to hear him on that I think it was the Gary Neville thing that I heard. Yeah, the stick to football thing. Yeah, but we just we just want we just want. I think everybody wants everyone to work together to get on for the good for the good of the game, and hopefully one day they'll manage to do that. But right now it looks a little bit still away. Yeah, I see. I see. Um, you, you, you you mentioned the the Ryder Cup earlier, and you you know you as a player you were pretty. Pretty, pretty impressive in in Brookline and in, in Medina um, on your uh, appearances. Is that something? Is captaincy still something you hold on to when you'd like to do one day? I would have thought that the captaincy's gone for me now. Uh, I tried, I tried three times mm-hmm. um, to be the captain. I tried for Glen Eagles, but I was a bit late deciding that I wanted to do it there. And you know they chose they chose McGinley who did a magnificent job, and then I went for it in 2018, and I think it was down to Thomas Bjorn and myself, and they chose Thomas. I see. Which again, <clears throat> Manny did a fantastic job. You know, fair enough. And then I went for it again in Rome, um, and didn't get it, um, and they wrongly gave it to Stenson because I I think everybody could see that he was he was going to be thinking about going to live or talking about live mm. and that was that was not allowed at the time and then Luke got it and again Luke was magnificent Luke was up there as, as much as McGinley for me with the job he did and considering the, the result of the previous outing um, that they had and then to give him I've always said that if you're a winning captain you should be given the opportunity to defend 
So the fact that he's got it again mm. is the right thing to do. So then that leaves everybody sort of, you know, almost four years from now before somebody's the next captain. I see, um, yeah. And I'll be, I'll be 59, nearly 60, so that's not going to happen for me. So I don't think I'll be the captain now, which, I mean, it's fine. It's not, not an issue. I'd have loved to have done that. It would have capped off my my career, but it's not going to happen. So, you know, that's just some things you don't you don't always get what you want. As a player, you had so many standout moments. Um, what were your fondest memories from the Ryder Cup or your perhaps your standout moments from, from the event? Well, I hit, I hit the opening tee shot in 1999 playing with Monty yes. on the Friday morning. Um, that will be something that I will never, never, ever forget. And I don't think you can get much better than that. It's to start a Ryder Cup off. I think that's a pretty cool thing to to tell your grandkids that you were the one that drove off, you know, the first morning. So that was a great feeling. Um, and in 2012 from Medina, you know, I went out number five in the singles. We were four points behind. Um, Jose Maria, the captain, said that the first five players must win in the morning to get us ahead. And he's put you in number five. So he's uh. asking you to get a point. So to go out there and shoot six under par for 15 holes mm. is the best golf I think I've ever played under the, the pressure that you were under. Um, but obviously winning the Open will be the biggest thing I ever achieved. That will always be the case. Yeah. But 2012 in Medina, that Sunday, I don't think it gets much better than that no. You know, for a golfer. When your back's against the wall, you're playing against the top team. They're all playing well. They're all putting well. The crowd, you're away from home against the crowd. To turn that around the way we did, oh, that was amazing. That was amazing to be part of that. I must have been about 14 at the time. I remember watching it. Um, I was allowed to stay up and watch it. It was it was incredible. I remember, and I think I think your victory against Snedeker must have been the most convincing of the day. It was was it five and four or four and five and four? I think was it five and four. Yeah, I was yeah I was six under for fifteen holes. Um, I played lovely. Um, I didn't put a foot wrong. Uh, I put him under course straight away. Um, he's a lovely lad, by the way. He he's mm. kind of one of the Americans I've always had a. A huge amount of respect for and time for. He's quite quiet, which I know is unusual for them. <laughs> um, but but it doesn't matter what what you think of them. If he's in front of you, you've got to take him down. Yeah. So just chuffed a bit the way I played and the way the whole thing sort of turned out for everyone. You mentioned the the, the open there. That's obviously something I'd love to speak to you about. Um, you were born in Aberdeen, weren't you? You grew up in a place called Kemney, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, Kemney, and, yeah. And it, so it must have been incredible to um, just play at the Open in general in Scotland and in front of your own and to win it in front of a home crowd. It must have just been an amazing thrill for you. Uh, yeah, well, I, that's that's only about an hour from here, um, mm. Kernisty. Um, so I kind of, I, we had a, Michael was only six months old at the time. So I kind of stayed at home and drove up and down that week uh, to play wow. at Kernisty. Um so it's it's amazing to the only the only real chance that I've had to win a major was there, and it's an hour from your house. It's quite incredible how it works out. It was, it was, I mean, it was a special week. Uh, the course was set up really tough. Um, it was more of a mental challenge that week than a physical one, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, a lot of players didn't handle that very well, which. I've been there myself. Sometimes you don't handle it very well. It just depends what's happening. But that week I was on it. I was really on it mentally. Um, my game was in good shape. I kept the ball in play and I putted very well. So when the course was set up like that, that's what you've got to do. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, the, the footage of it I've seen. Uh, 
from Carnage City that week was extremely, extremely brutal. I think you're a couple behind halfway at halfway stage, but obviously you completed the biggest comeback in major championship history, I believe it is, 10 shots behind. At the start of the Sunday rounds, did, did you have any expectations, I suppose, or was it just, you know, playing the course sort of thing? Uh, well, I teed off, even though I was 10 shots behind, I was in 13th position. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, yeah. Because Sean was five ahead, I think, when he teed off in the final round. So there was then quite a few players kind of all bunched together. Um, so my goal for the day was to finish top four to get in the Masters because I hadn't played the Masters at that point. Mm-hmm. So that was my goal for the day. Um, and I wasn't in the, the World Cup team for two-man Scotland team at that point. Oh, okay. Andrew Coulthard was ahead of me on the list playing on the Sunday and he was actually, he was having a good week that week as well at Coonistie but I managed to pass him and, and take his spot which I was very chuffed about as you can imagine. Yes, yes. So that was the two things that was on my mind, the getting in the Masters and getting in the World Cup team for, uh, for Scotland. Um, and then sometimes when smaller things are your goal, bigger things happen. It's amazing how, you know, amazing how it works. Um, did very well, um, hit the shot, right shots at the right time, kept my head when others were losing theirs. And that's just, again, when you're in that situation of trying to win something that big, it comes down to the way you act and the yeah. shots you hit at certain times and keeping yourself on the straight and narrow and not losing your mind and getting excited and thinking ahead about what would happen if you win. You've got to be there and now and hit the right shot at the right time. And I did that better than the other two, I would say. Oh, certainly. I mean, Jordan obviously, Van der Berg obviously fell back in, into the playoff, having had a, a, a pretty convincing lead. But in in the playoff, you made two fantastic birdies, didn't you? And that was really the the the, the, the two birdies in the last two holes of the playoff were extremely decisive, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I I, um, I went bogey, bogey, birdie, birdie. So I was level par for the four. Um, but you know, those are. Those are really four very tough holes mm-hmm. at Coonistie and it was raining and it was getting later on at night and it, was, it wasn't chilly because it was July but there was still a lot of people about and obviously the Open's on the line, the weather's not great, it's a playoff, you're kind of excited and nervous at the same time so you know, you've got to keep your head and that's where all the hours and hours of you know, working with Adam Hunter who was my coach at the time and Dr Richard Cox, my psychologist, mm-hmm. All the hours of work with those two kind of pays off. Um, you, you do what you do and you work hard to give yourself an opportunity of winning big tournaments. That's what it's all about. No, so way. when I got my opportunity to, to play the way I played and to hold myself together, um, I couldn't be more proud of the job that all three of us did there because they, they two were a massive part of it. Of course. Um... Well, I just thought I'd ask when when Van der Velde was sort of playing the seventy second hole, and you know it was all unfolding. Where did you watch that from? Were you sort of in the in the clubhouse or by the green? Uh, where, where did you watch that from? We were in the rain hitting balls when he was playing the last. Oh, okay. Because obviously, right. we, we, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be ready. Uh, if anything, anyone slips up, so we went to the range and uh, Paddy, my caddy, he was in the hut. There was a monitor in the hut, so Adam told him to stay there and watch them, let us know what was happening. And him and I went to kind of hit balls and kind of get ready and get loose as we can mm. and prepared for the playoff if it ever happened. See, um, I mean, I suppose just how, how nerve-wracking is it to play a playoff at the Open? Or, 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 or were, you, were, were you quite calm? Yeah, I was calm. No, I was calm. It's your job. It's, uh, it's just what you do. I mean, there's... Mm. Um, Obviously, it's a difficult situation because you haven't been there before, but 
like I say, you work hard and you spend hours and hours working on the, the hope that you're going to do that. And when it comes around, you've got to just take it in your stride. Um, I very much took it in my stride. I loved it. Um, it was a great experience. Um, I didn't feel nervous at all. I felt totally focused and prepared and ready to go and try and win, you know, the biggest event in the world. Um, and I think you could see that when you watch the, the, mm-hmm. the coverage and TV coverage. I look, I don't look nervous or no. thingy at all. I just look as though I'm going to wait to win. So that was very satisfying. Yeah. Um, well, will, will you play the, the Open at Troon this year, do you think? Uh, not sure at the moment because the the Senior Open is the week after. And okay. then we have a we have a Legends event in Aberdeen the week after that. So I'm not sure I can play three weeks in a row at, at the minute at my age. So I might miss the Open, but I haven't totally decided yet. I see, I see. Okay. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Um, you've been so, so generous to me today. Hi, Dale. Take right. care. Take care, Paul. Bye See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. So I think I just I just think that's amazing, Steve. Do you know what I thought was the best bit about that is when Paul Laurie, major champion, kind of celeb golfer, was explaining how he spends his days, and he said, "I go to the range in the morning, check everything's okay, and then in the afternoons I sometimes go for a drive." I mean, there's there's hands on, isn't there? I mean, I know he owns it, and there's hands on though, and there's hands on. You know, him talking about getting into the work early in the morning. It just, it just that like the the difference there must be in his life between what he has now, which is essentially, relatively speaking, a quote normal life. You know, he gets up in the morning, he goes to work at his place of work, um, and what he's experienced in the past. I thought one of the really telling things was just how much. I mean, obviously, his career has been massively long. You know, he turned pro in 1986. Um, and just how much that kind of life must grind you down after a while. I mean, he's, he's sort of saying, wasn't he, I'm going to play five times this year. Might not even play the Open at True. Might, might not. I just don't want to be travelling that much anymore. And you think, yeah, fair play. Um, just generally, though, I, I, I really admire what he's done, not just at the Paul Laurie Golf Centre, but obviously with the Tartan Pro Tour. I mean, he stepped in in the latter when there was no golf being played, as he points out himself. And he gave, he's given um, people a new vehicle to play. And obviously with the loss of things like the Euro Pro Tour, the Tartan Pro Tour is just more and more vital, isn't it, for, for all golfers, especially those north of the border. But his attitude towards club golf, his attitude towards juniors, and the way that the game should be accessible and the way that the game should be played just chimes like with massively with, with my thinking of it on, on golf and I'm sure a lot of other people as well. You know, he doesn't care what kids turn up in. Great. Absolutely fantastic. There are there are rules still. You know, it's not a free for all, but the, but the point is to make the game as easy to play as possible for everyone. He spent God knows how much money they've spent on that place, but you know the, the the kind of top tracer range they've got in there is top is top notch. Amount of money they've spent on the golf course, he should be really proud. I mean, you know, people talk a lot about growing the game, and it's an empty phrase, um, but he's actually doing it, and he's actually invested a lot of his time and his resource into doing that as well. And um, I'm a huge admirer of what he's done. Yeah, it's, that is. I think you've absolutely nailed it there. With like, he's actually put his money where his mouth is from a in a growing the game point of view, um, and both like in terms of the Tartan Pro Tour for professional golfers, but also for amateurs from all walks of life. But he 
is very much his own man, isn't he? So he's he's sort of happy to say, yeah, I think you know, dress code should basically abolished be abolished, certain certainly for children, sort eminently sensible stuff. But equally, he was kind of saying he thought that golf was exceptionally good value, which not not everyone would agree with that. But I guess his own facility, it sounds like it is ridiculous value, and makes a good point that if people are sort of making use of of golf courses, even up to a kind of thousand pounds a year, then then golf is still representing um, value for money for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think that the 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 value of golf is an interesting question, and and I think it largely depends on how you access the game. So, you know, I've written obviously about these 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 membership fees. Obviously, I mean, they people are talking about a thousand pounds. They're obviously way more down south, um, and the number of people who are now having to ch- to shell out a thousand pounds a year to play golf. And it, I, I look at it, and I try to keep this out of my writing. I look at this largely from my own point of view, where I think it's not massively great value because I am not playing that much. So my my sort of cost per round is quite high. Whereas, you know, if I was in a different demographic and I was playing, as Paul Laurie says, three times a week, then it's remarkably good value because the, what I'm getting out of it for the money that I'm putting in isn't... It's not, it's, you're basically there all the time, aren't you? You're, you're, if your yield per round is five pounds, you're getting massive value for it, aren't you? You're getting a huge amount of everything else that comes with it as well. So I think it's, a, and, and I may have been guilty of this in the past. I think it's dangerous to start branding golf in terms of value because it differs depending on how you active the, access the sport, doesn't it? It does, yeah. But it is, I mean, it is interesting to hear from him. Like, he's a golf course operator. He's got children who are trying to make their way in, in the professional game. He's obviously had a career, very successful career. So he's kind of seen it top to bottom. Um, so he's worth listening to, isn't he, on the kind of issues that are relevant to people trying to um, cut their teeth as professional golfers and kind of like the expense of travel and the importance of the access to tournaments that are kind of closer to home. But equally, the, the kind of access to affordable golf, I think you're saying that the membership at his nine holer was three or, three or 400 pounds a year. So yeah, I agree that um, it's not one size fits all in terms of the value that golf represents, but he has got his eyes open to that, I think. And he's kind of obviously got a facility which is, it is relatively low cost. I'll tell you what else is interesting as well. Like, he, he, it must eat away at him about the Ryder Cup captaincy. I know he sort of said he's, he's made his peace in with it and fair play to him. And he spoke so respectfully about um, Luke Donald's tenure and the fact he's going to get another go at it. And he, he thinks that's absolutely right. Um, and it sounds like he was quite close to picking up the, um, the Paris Ryder Cup, which obviously Bjorn successfully captained. But he, I mean, he's played in two. He's undefeated in singles. He's been part of like two of the most memorable Ryder Cups in our lifetime, the Battle of Brooklyn and the Miracle at Medina. He won his singles on both those days by sort of handsome margins. And as he explained in the interview, he was kind of in absolutely crucial match at Medina, which he won five and four, I think. Um, he's obviously he's obviously a major winner and, and been an absolute stalwart of the European Tour for God knows how many years. Um, so it's amazing that he hasn't had an opportunity to do it. And all, all, all credit to him for, for being so reverential and so respectful about those that have had the opportunity. Ryder Cups are often picked on personalities you know whether that whether that's right for the team or not um i think paul is unfortunate that he has had his prime and had his career in a period of absolute 
European dominance in terms of, and not in terms of the way that golf is played outside of the Ryder Cup as well. I mean, it's just unfortunate that Padraig Harrington's been around. Um, it's just unfortunate, um, that Luke Donald has obviously been around, that Thomas Bjorn has been around. I mean, I, he's obviously not going to get the captaincy, as he says, which is a shame. I think he should be involved, and I, I definitely think he should be involved in Beth Page because who knows more about dealing with Ryder Cups in the USA than this guy? I mean, he's played in two of the seminal European Ryder Cups in the United States over the past generation, Brookline in 99 and Medina in 2012. Who knows more about shutting up a crowd, about dealing with adversity, about what is required to win in that environment than this guy does. And we're going into an absolute war, make no mistake, at Bath Page in New York. Um, I went to the... um, to the PGA Championship that Brooks Kepka won, I think in 2019. And I saw what that crowd is like. And you're going to have to amp that up 10, 20 times for Ryder Cup. It's going to be absolutely insane. And it's going to really need some strong mental people involved getting Europe through that. And who better than Paul Laurie? So, I mean, as he says, he's not going to be captain. But I would absolutely, if I was Luke Donald, have him as part of the team for Beth Page as a, as a, as a vice captain. Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder, if he'd, I wonder if he'd accept. The other thing I thought that was interesting is just his open win. It was obviously one of the most memorable opens in our lifetime, but not necessarily for the winner. We remember it for the kind of Carnasty stuff. We obviously remember it for Van der Velde. And I wonder how much he sort of has has had to make his peace with that as well, that he's kind of, in some people's eyes, would be seen as sort of backdooring that championship. He's won, like, he's been champion golfer of the year. He's won the kind of greatest tournament there is to win in golf. And again, it sounds like he's made his peace with it, but I wonder how much time that has taken to kind of sort of believe in himself as an open champion. Amazing thing that was on his doorstep. Obviously, I know the geography of Scotland, but it never really occurred to me that he would have driven from home for for the days of that championship. That's really cool, isn't it? Yeah, amazing, amazing bit of insight there. I'd never known that. But you know what? I, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to disagree with you slightly about it. Um, I, I do uh, understand the Van der Velde, Van der Velde line, and obviously people remember it for Van der Velde. But as much as I remember John Van der Velde in the, in the, in obviously the Barry Bird, and as much as I remember the rough, I remember the four iron that Laurie hit in yeah, the playoff. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, yeah, I remember it. I remember it like I can still see it going in the air. One of the greatest major championship shots ever hit, and that I remember that shot um, and what he did to win in the playoff as much as as much as Van der Velde carting about with his shoes off in the in the burn. It was what what was interesting about what he said in that interview, and I'm, he must have said similar things before, but it's obviously fresh in the mind now. It's just about that sort of clarity of thought. So it obviously been this horrific bad weather week, and we all know how you get frazzled on a golf course in the wind and the rain, and it's so distracting. Even the way he described it, sort of betrayed sort of unbelievable clarity of thought in that he was just very much sort of one shot at a time, stayed in the moment, everyone else is sort of losing their minds. So I th- thought it was very, very well described and sort of very kind of visceral. You sort of knew exactly what he meant about staying in the moment. And that's obviously what he did. And what, what an absolutely brilliant victory. Fair play to him. Must have spoken to Chiv for about an hour. <laughs> yeah. he's. Uh, I've spoken to him in the past about all kinds of things. Um, and he's enormously giving and generous with his time. And it's great to hear from him because I think he talks a lot of sense about golf. 
Um, and as you say, you know, this the 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 new. I mean, obviously, he's had the he's had the centre for more than a decade now. Um, but this this part of his life, this different part of his life, has only accentuated for me not just his love of the game, but also his knowledge of the game, and it's really really deep. I mean, I, I think it's something that we should absolutely tap into. I know Scottish golf tried to for a while. I think he did. He definitely did some work with their. Um, with their development teams for a little bit, passing on on some of that knowledge with Katrina Matthew. I just like to see him involved more. I mean, he said on the podcast, didn't he, that he was on the sort of policy board for a year, and that was quite enough. Um, um, once he realised the sort of work was involved, but when you've got someone who's as knowledgeable about golf as he is, understands not just the professional but the amateur and the grassroots scene as much as he does, um, then um, it would be a crying shame, I think, if we don't take advantage of that for many years to come. Um, and it's just great to see what he's doing at his centre. It's um, it, it's fantastic. It's no wonder it's massively popular. Yeah, it's brilliant. So generous, benevolent, kind-hearted. Let's hope that you're showing some of these characteristics in uh, this week's Rules Corner, shall we? So Rules Corner is a weekly feature where my wits are pitted against Steve's knowledge of the rules of golf. We're in episode four, and I think I'm currently leading 2-1, aren't I? There's only that stupid thing about prizes that I got wrong. I've been giving you two easy questions, and I'm, I'm afraid I might have given you a straightforward one this time. But if I if I let you get a little bit of a lead up, then I'll then I'll sort of slap you this down. This is what I don't like right? about this thing is that it's you're too much in control of it. Like you can just decide to like turn it up to eleven or whatever. I'm basically stroking a cat as, as, exactly, as I speak yeah. on my lap. Right, should we go on with it then? I think we should. Um, would yeah. This is um, this week's uh, Reels Corner. Obviously, uh, the weather's been really bad for a long, long time now. Um, in York, uh, where, where I obviously live, we had a, a massive amount of rain that closed the golf course this week as well. Um, but it's not just the rain that keeps us off the course. When we do return, obviously, that sort of deluge uh, leaves all kinds of havoc in its wake because machines, if they get on, they leave marks and particularly they leave ruts. So tractor ruts around this time of year would be not uncommon. And the question I'm going to ask you is, are tractor ruts considered ground under repair? Are tractor ruts considered ground under repair? I think in order for tractor ruts to be considered ground under repair, it needs to be a local rule and otherwise they are not ground under repair i'm gonna to have to start making these questions more difficult uh, the definitions to the rules of golf and a clarification to the meaning of ground under repair reveals that not all damage caused by the club maintenance team is ground under repair by default and a rut made by a tractor is one of those examples now ground under repair in the definition can be any part of the course the committee defines it to be whether that's marked or otherwise and depending on how deep the rut is that clarification that i talked about earlier says a committee is justified in declaring a deep rut to be ground under repair. Um, you talked about a model local rule. If things are particularly troubling, so if it's been raining cats and dogs, for example, and there's some vehicles and deep footprints have caused what's classed as unusual damage to the course, there is a local rule. It's F4 for anyone who wants to look it up that can also define such areas as GUR. So you need to look at your local rules. You can bring, obviously, a 
particularly treacherous looking route to the attention of your club and try your luck. But uh, if you just chance it and take relief anywhere, you might well come unstuck and pick up a penalty for playing from the wrong place. So there you are. So it doesn't have um, to be. It doesn't have to be marked either, does it? You can just say, like, on a bit of paper on the card, "Greenkeepers tracks RGUR." Yes. Tell you what else I've found out whilst being in your presence is that dropping from GUR is not mandatory, is it? Uh, no, it's not, and and this is this causes some confusion with the old version rules of golf, um, which I didn't get too much into. So I'm a bit lost when people talk about this. But pre 2019, I believe there was something called mandatory GUR, um, which essentially forced golfers to take relief from GUR. Um, that is not the case anymore now. Um, so now, basically, if you want to stop people from playing in a particular area yeah. of the course, you have to class it as a no-play zone. Yeah. Now, there are some really some clubs, and a club I used to be at, um, they do in their local rules say that all GUR are no-play zones, um, which then forces you to take relief from the ground under repair because it's a no-play no play zone. I'm not a particular fan of that. There's a couple of reasons for it. Um, the first is um, if you declare all GUR to be a no-play zone, you just set yourself up for a fall because you're then forcing to people to take relief and you're forcing them to find their nearest point of complete relief. Now, the rules state that your nearest point of complete relief can be in a bad place. So they use the example of, you know, if your nearest point of relief is a bush, then you're dropping in a bush. Um, so why would you necessarily want to force people into having to drop somewhere where they're going to be disadvantaged, more disadvantaged than they were in the GUR. Um, I saw um, at one of my former clubs the ten at Sandburn Hall, the 10th, they were doing some work on the bunkers and the local rule is that all GUR is no play zone, right? So a friend of mine had to pick the ball out of the bunker, which was GUR, and his nearest point of complete relief was right under a fir tree. So he had to drop under the fir tree. Um, so I'd say to golf clubs that want to use GUR as, uh, want to make GUR no play zones, have a look at where the nearest point of complete relief is going to be for golfers, because it might be that you're actually forcing them to drop in a worse place. And I swear to God, you know, if you want to, you want to annoy golfers, give them worse relief option than the one they've got. You'll be hearing all about yeah, it. Yeah, in the clubhouse I've, and I've, I've had it. I've had this exact, exact thing on the 12th or Woodley where we <laughs> extended the green and the green extension was GUR for a period. And if you landed on the area of GUR and you could play it, then it'd just, you'd just be putting because it was just basically a bit of green. But if you were forced to take relief, you'd have been like on the wrong side of a hillock. Um, so it is, it is a rule worth knowing, definitely. Yeah, and, and a lot of clubs don't consider it because what they what they think about in their minds is, well, we've just redone this turf, so obviously we don't want golfers playing off it. Um, and you know, a lot of members will think the same way. Why are we spending a load of money like re-turfing this bunker and then idiots are taking like divots out of it? And I understand that point of view. And obviously, if it's the winter, you know, you might not have the same the same types of competitions. It might not be the same standard of golf that you would that you would play in the summer and you can get around that and golfers will be more happy to do it. But if you have a blanket GUR rule as a no-play zone, then it, then it absolutely causes problems if you're not careful about where your nearest points of complete relief are. It was good, really good. And that concludes episode four of the NCG Golf Podcast. 
Um, I thought that was brilliant, Steve, actually. The world needs more Paul Lorries, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a fantastic interview. I really enjoyed listening to it. And um, as I said earlier on, he's got a lot of good things to say about golf, hasn't he? So whilst he wasn't our planned special guest, he was a very special guest. Next week, we will definitely have our very special guest. Do you know why the, our special guest couldn't come on this week without giving too much away? Uh, I do not. Because he's in South Africa, where they have something called load shedding which is to do with power. So the power was off. Is this because they haven't got enough power? I'm not sure, but we could all do with a bit of load shedding in January, couldn't we? Um, yeah, I could do with some load shedding right now. Exactly, right. So on that note, please give us a subscribe. We really would like it if you could subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is you get your podcast. It massively shows in our numbers that subscribers pick us up immediately as we publish. So you don't want to miss out. You want to be one of those people. Do write in, let us know what you think. Particularly let us know what you think about my sound quality because I've tried really hard with this week. Uh, other than that, see you next week. Cheers, Tom.